0: Welcome to Mogul's Interview Series. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and I'm delighted to welcome our next guest, Bassem Youssef. Bassem is a doctor, a surgeon to be exact, who in the midst of the Egyptian Revolution in 2011 created Egypt's first political satire show that went on to become the most popular television program in the country's history. His work on al-Burnameg, or the program in English, led Bassem to be dubbed the John Stewart of the Arabic world. Bassem's powerful story is chronicled in the recent documentary film, Tickling Giants, and we get to hear it today. Bassem, thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. So I want to get to know you and really to start at the very beginning. So where were you born?
1: I was born in Cairo, born and raised.
0: Were you funny as a kid?
1: Was I just like a regular dude, you know. I had my jokes, but I'm not exceptionally funny. I mean, nobody thought that I would have my own TV show, including me.
0: So you said you didn't think you would have your own TV show, but did you ever have dreams of doing something with comedy? Everybody
1: has a dream to be a rock star and a TV person, right? It's like everybody's first dream is to become Superman or a firefighter, right?
0: <laughs> I guess so. So in fact, were those yours? Yeah,
1: I would like to be on TV. Like, everybody wants to be famous, right? But the fact that it happens, this is really entirely different.
0: Yeah, you studied medicine? How'd that come up?
1: in Egypt you'd go straight to medicine for seven years after high school. We don't have pre-med like here. So we went to medicine and then I specialized in heart surgery and then practiced for 12 years and then the revolution came and then I did my videos and it caught fire and uh, the rest is history.
0: So here you are you're a heart surgeon and you just said you had been practicing for 12 years so what led you to want to start doing the videos? How did all that come up?
1: Well, I was doing the video on the side on YouTube, and the reason I did it is that there was a kind of discrepancy between what's happening in reality and what's happening on the media. Because the state-run media was just like brainwashing people and spreading the infamous fake news and telling everybody that those people in the streets were operatives and spies. And I kind of used their videos against them and showed the hypocrisy of the media. I didn't think much about it. I thought, like, you know, maybe 10,000 people watched the videos, and then it ended up having 5 million people watching.
0: It's amazing. It
1: blew up from there, yeah.
0: And you started doing these videos in your home, on the side. And then how did a network come about? How did you get to TV?
1: Well, three weeks into the videos, I started to have offers from different TV networks. And then I ended up having a deal for one year for a pre-recorded TV show. And then after that one year, I wanted to have a live show with live audience. Uh, which at that time was something that nobody comprehended. It was something that was just not done in the Middle East. And I pushed for it and ended up having my show. So it's kind of like one thing led to another, really.
0: And for people that haven't yet seen this film, Tickling Giants, or aren't yet familiar with you and your work, could you walk us through what happened during the TV show, some of the opposition that you faced from the government and some of your experiences? Can you kind of take us through the timeline?
1: I did what political satirists do, make fun of media and authority. But the Islamic Authority, when they came to power, had a warrant for my arrest. I was interrogated, was harassed, but I continued doing it. And then the military came over and did a military coup, and then I make fun of them. And then I was again harassed, persecuted, and ended up having my show uh, uh, killed twice. And at the end of the day, I had to escape because I was just like too close to be even being arrested or uh, put on a no-fly list. And then at the end of the day, I had to leave. because, like how humor and political satire can easily get under the skin of the theatres and authoritarian regimes. And it's kind of resonated with what I see here of how the president gets very offended and gets all riled up when somebody makes fun of him. So we had that, but on steroids, and it became pretty much unsafe for the show to continue. So I had to leave.
0: So you said that during the course of the show, and, and how long was it on, by the way? How many seasons did three you have? Years. Three years. And you said that during the course of the three years, you were harassed, and that ultimately one of the The networks canceled your show and then you went back. So could you talk to us about what it was like being harassed and why you decided to continue and how you got the strength to continue and even got the strength to then go back and go to another station and do it all again? That's amazing.
1: Well, harassment takes many forms. Part of it is the cyberbullying, not just by regular people, but by authority-sponsored bots whether under the Islam or whether under the military, and then you have the media. Imagine yourself being the main issue or the headline of every single talk show for three years. I'm always on the news, always people have something to say about my show, accusing me of all kinds of things, being an infidel, being gay, being a secret Zionist, a secret American spy, uh, someone who's being paid from abroad, all kinds of stuff. And so this is kind of like media harassment. Legal harassment was like, I was interrogated for six hours. There was a warrant for my arrest in the military. There were all of these quote unquote volunteers that would go in and file legal complaints and the legal complaints has to be investigated and uh, people coming to the theater and trying to shut it down. And people putting the theater under siege, harassing people going in for work, harassing people going in to watch the show. Arresting people around me, the family of my producers. So it kind of, (laughs) there was all kinds of harassment, whether direct or indirect.
0: Were you ever scared?
1: I don't know if I was scared. I was just focused on doing the show. My main thing is like if I would be able to do the show or not. That was my main concern. Because like if you are on air and you have a bad show, there's no excuse for that. But if you are taken off the air or arrested and you can't do the show, at least you have an excuse. <laughs>
0: if you weren't scared and you were focused on doing the show, how did your family feel? Were they paying attention to the the media and what they were saying?
1: Well my mom was always worried. Uh, my my wife was extremely understanding. Uh, she knew that she, you know she knows she knows that I was hot headed and I'm not gonna budge. She would show that she's concerned, but she would not push for me to stop the show or anything. It was very understanding.
0: That's beautiful. I hear celebrities, when there is bad press about them, some people say that they just ignore it, that they don't even read the press. And that's kind of how they stay focused on what they're doing in their craft. Was that the case for you? Were you always aware of what was happening in the media and the harassment that was taking place? Or did you just try to shut yourself off from it?
1: Well, for me, it's very hard to shut yourself off the press because that was my job. My job is to read the press and to read the news. Right, okay, of course. Because that was political satire. I mean, I was not an actor. I was not someone who was doing a show that, like, I can choose not to read the press. I have to read the news and I have to follow the news because that is the meat of my show. So it was very hard for me to ignore it.
0: Wow, so that makes you all the more brave. So then you said there was a point where you had to flee the country. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that and how that came up?
1: At a certain point, there was a dispute between me and the channel that stopped my show, and we went to arbitration. And out of nowhere, they won the case, which is absolutely weird for them to win a case. They want to stop the show. And not just that, the, the verdict came was a very bizarre verdict that was never seen in Egyptian uh, arbitration history, which is like they, they slam you with 100 million pounds of a fine. And that was very unheard of. My lawyer said, this is a made-up case, and they will just use this to put you in jail or to prevent you from traveling. When you have a totalitarian regime who has been having experience in oppressing people, they will never put you in jail because of freedom of expression, they will find something as an excuse, like tax, for example. So there's a very famous football player, football player as in soccer. They accused him of financing activities that's against the government, which is not true. And they had a made-up case against him about tax evasion. And that drove him to actually escape the country and not come back. So there was all of these tools that they can use in order to put you down, put you in jail, prevent you from traveling. So the verdict came out at noon, I remember at 5 o'clock, I was on a plane leaving the country.
0: Wow, five hours? What what year was this? November 11th, what year?
1: 2014, 11th of November, 2014.
0: When you grabbed your bags to go leave the country, did you know that that was it? Did you think you'd ever be able to come back?
1: No, I didn't think about it at that time, but... Uh, now I understand now i I, think I can see it now I make sense of the whole thing, that I'll never be back anytime soon.
0: Oh my gosh. so what happened? So twelve o'clock and you just you just grab your bags and your family and you run is that that's what happened? Just yeah. just hoping you hoping you'd make it to the airport before anyone caught you.
1: By the next day, it would be all over the news. like the talk show at night and it will be in the newspaper. So I had a few hours window to uh, run away from it, yeah.
0: It's unbelievable. Where'd you go? What were you going to do? I
1: went to Dubai first, and I stayed there for a year, and then I moved to the States. Why Dubai? Well, I already had a residency there, and my uh, uh, production partner, who already escaped there a year before me because they arrested his father and his brother, went there. So there was a better setup for me to go there. And then I found out that, like, staying in the Middle East would be counterproductive, and I just left.
0: Mm. And you said that then you went to L.A. What was the decision for that?
1: Well, I mean, I wanted to continue working in media, and in the United States, you either go to New York or or L.A., right? And uh, uh, L.A. has better weather, so that was it.
0: (laughs) So what did you do when you got to L.A.?
1: I managed to get an agent and managers, and I already had connections with Fusion TV, and I started doing this show called Democracy Handbook. I wrote a book called Revolution for Dummies, and that was about the time where Sarah was finishing her movie Tickling Giants, and then I started to do promotion trips for and promotion work for it. And right now, I'm working with Larry Wilmore on uh, writing a pilot for ABC hoping that it will be picked up as a series. Um, So we'll never know, right?
0: Right, right. So let's talk about a few of those things. One is you just mentioned Sarah, and by Sarah, I think you mean Sarah Taxler, who is the director of Tickling Giants. This movie is just incredible. Could you tell us a little bit about how it came up? How did Sarah find you?
1: I was visiting the offices of The Daily Show in 2012. And at that time, I didn't know Sarah or anything, but I was visiting there. That was the time when I wanted to do the live show version of the show. And Sarah met me and found my story interesting and asked me if I don't mind to be the subject of our documentary. And I said yes.
0: Was the experience any different having the documentary film going on simultaneously while you were doing the show?
1: Not really. I mean, we were having uh, crews coming in to shoot. I mean, we had 60 Minutes. We had BBC. We had Reuters. We were always used to the being the premise of our
0: work. And while we're talking about the film, I've got to say the ending was when you were on the plane to go to Dubai and it left me feeling frustrated and sad. At that time, how were you feeling? And then also after that part where you're on the plane and you're escaping, there are a bunch of clips of you talking in the U.S. and you giving speeches of hope and speeches about how people can stand up to oppression and sharing your own story. Could you share with us how you managed to have hope at the end after all of that, and how in this very, very difficult time of what's happening in our nation and our world, how we can have hope and how we can stand up to oppression?
1: The fact that you find it a little bit depressing at the end, because this is reflective of what we had in Egypt. We had hope and it was taken away from us. But there's always hope because if you read history, regimes like these are not sustainable. And I'm here, I'm trying to have a new beginning. So there is hope in that. I think I did quite well for a couple of years in the United States, having a book, having a documentary, uh, trying to write a new show, having a few shows and works here in in the United States. So there is a new hope for the new generation. Uh, Maybe Albernamek, my show, was uh, stopped and suspended. This is depressing, but at the end of the day, there's always new beginnings and there's always new venues to start to, to spread your voice and to speak up. So it doesn't really begin and end with one thing. There's always new ways to start over. Talk about hope. Just recently, you had like the Alabama elections. Like, who ever thought that you have a Democrat winning the Senate, right? It doesn't begin and end with the election of a person or the ending of a democratic experience. There's always a way to come back and come back on top.
0: And you're doing that here with with all the things you just mentioned, your book that came out and this new show with Larry Wilmore. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I I love how in the very beginning, you said that when you were a kid, you dreamed of being a rock star and you actually used the word superhero. And here you are developing a show about a superhero. So could you tell us about that? The
1: show is called Super Challenge Heroes, and uh, it's about a Middle Eastern family with secret superpowers. And I'm writing it with Larry. I'm still not celebrating the show yet because you're only writing a pilot. And as you know, in networks, there are like dozens of pilots that are written and submitted and shot every year and they only choose one or two to get make it to series. So we hope we are the lucky ones and we hope we get it.
0: I hope so too. So, um, so speaking of projects you're working on, I think a question on everyone's mind is, will you come back and have a show like the one that you did in Egypt? Is that on the docket for you? Because we would love to see you in that capacity again.
1: If I did the show, it would be something here in the United States directed to the people in the United States, talking about Things that matter to the people who are living here, whether you are immigrant or not, and uh, yeah, we, of course I'm pitching ideas, but you know there's there's a lot of competition here, and I hope to come back, but not as the, the same thing as El because El was only meant to be for Egypt, for Egyptians inside of Egypt, and I'm, I have no interest whatsoever to do it from outside the country.
0: Mm. Do you miss
1: it? Yeah, of course you miss you, know, you miss your country. You miss these days. But uh, it's important to look ahead and to start all over again.
0: Mm. And how does your family fit into this? When the film ended, um, your brother was still in Egypt. Is he still there? Have you been able to see each other or not?
1: Uh, yeah, he's still he's still there. He came and visited me a couple of times, uh, once in Dubai and once in the States, and. Uh, My family, my wife, and my daughter, and I have a baby now, like a baby boy. Nadia, my daughter, is having a wonderful time at school. She's in kindergarten. It is a lovely city to live in. Uh, Lovely weather. At least we don't have snow, which is great. So, yeah, uh, we're fitting in quite well.
0: Great. So as we come to a close, what's your advice for aspiring comics and aspiring actors?
1: I'm not in a position to give anybody that advice. I think everybody finds his own way and his own voice. Whatever was relevant for me at the time is different. Everybody has their own variables and their own inputs and their own circumstances and I don't think that like, there's one advice that fits all. I didn't get advice from anybody who's older or bigger than me. I just had my own way to do it. And I think people who have achieved and done something of their lives, they figure it out from themselves. They will get aspirations from different sources and and they find their way to do it. That's why when I get invited into universities, people who are 18, 19, or 20, I tell them, guys, I belong to a different generation. Whatever I will give you will be an outdated advice.
0: Two final things. Number one, I think that people would love it if you and Jon Stewart did a show together. Will that ever happen?
1: I don't know. Uh, John doesn't even, like, come out, out of his farm in New Jersey. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, how would I know?
0: So, okay. All right. TBD. Well, I'm going to put it out there. We hope it'll happen. And as we come to a final close from all these years of telling jokes and being on the air, do you have a favorite joke or a recent one um, that really makes you laugh that you can share with us? no. No.
1: No, because every joke has its own circumstances. And since you're mentioning John Stewart, John Stewart always said political satire is like a potato salad or an egg salad sandwich. It has the shelf life of an egg salad sandwich. It is relevant at a certain point, a certain mood. It cannot be replicated. Something that could be great could not be great the next day. And I don't measure my journey with jokes, but it is with point of views and stands which are kind of like more stable and more resilient than just like one joke that's been said.
0: You know, um, I do have one final thing. It's January of 2018. What are you looking forward to for the new year? What are your plans?
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to the midterms in November. Ah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So certainly your form of activism is through jokes, but will you be on the ground at all campaigning?
1: I'm not an American citizen yet, so I cannot really campaign.
0: Right, although although you can certainly spread a message through Twitter or share your your thoughts and your perspective.
1: Mm, I, I mean, I, I would I would try to spread my message more into my work. I would do the show with Larry Omerov. I would do like a TV show. It's kind of like I'm trying to spread more of um, of my message through humor and satire and. Uh, to comment on the status quo. That's that's going to be better than just campaigning for a certain candidate.
0: Well, we will look forward to following you and to seeing what else is to come. Bassam, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Jessica. Thanks so much.
0: This is Jessica Lips for Mogul. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.